Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me as usual is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. What's the haps, y'all? I know what the haps is with you. You just told me you're getting a dog. We're getting close. Yeah, we just had our dog interview today. (laughs) It's like... You have to answer in all barks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, they just come in. It's an adoption agency, so they come and make sure we're not uh, dog eaters. I don't know. There you go. Yeah. And we're not, thankfully. Let's get to it. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We are not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians interested in the darker side of Canadian history. This episode is the highest profile case I think we've covered to date. And it will be part one of two. Mm. It might be well known to some of our listeners in the United States. We're talking about a Canadian-born serial killer, Keith Hunter Jesperson, also known as the Happy Face Killer. Uh, That sounds familiar, the Happy Face Killer. Yeah. Mm. An extra caution, although we try to avoid a lot of detail, the subject of this story was cruel to animals as well. We have to mention some of these events as they are integral to his story and motivations, but I left a lot of detail out for sure. Yeah, probably for the better. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. It was a rainy and cold Sunday afternoon in January of 1990 when fun-loving 23-year-old Tanya Bennett drove to the B&I Tavern in Portland, Oregon, 18828 Southeast Stark Street. It was one of her favorite places to hang out with friends and meet guys to party with. Mm-hmm. Tanya was known to be a bit gullible and was often seen leaving the bar with men she'd just met. Her friends were concerned with this behavior and let her know, but she didn't seem to care. That night, Tanya was in the mood to party, and she alternated between beer and wine coolers all night, and she was having a pretty good time. Oh, good, good. A tall man bought the clearly intoxicated Tanya a drink, and the two chatted a while. The tall man left, and then Tanya left the bar about an hour later. Okay. When Tanya didn't return home the next day, her family was a bit worried, but thought she might have just met someone and would come home when the party was over. Mm -hmm. On January 23rd, a bicyclist stumbled upon the body of a woman in the brush in the Columbia Gorge, just off the scenic highway. Oh, boy. Police were notified immediately. 
Police taped off the crime scene and began their investigation. There was little blood, and the positioning of the body indicated that the woman had been killed elsewhere and dumped there, just like so much garbage. The woman had been badly beaten, so much so her bottom teeth had gone through her lip. Marks on her neck indicated that she'd been manually strangled, and there was a loop of nylon rope cinched tightly into her throat as well. What a terrible visual. A piece of the woman's jeans was missing from the scene. Investigators thought this may have been kept by her killer as a souvenir. Her purse was missing, and she could not be identified until later when Tanya's family saw media coverage about the discovery of a body. And what they were doing is they were showing her clothes Mm. on the news, and immediately I think it was her her sister knew that it was Tanya. Yeah, they they often do that when they're not uh, able to show uh, any photos of the person. Tanya Bennett was positively identified uh, by her family at the morgue. There was not a lot of physical evidence and very few leads. As the weeks went by, police used press coverage of the case to appeal to the public for help solving Tanya's death. On the 5th of February, a 57-year-old woman named Laverne Pavlinak came forward. She was implicating her abusive alcoholic common-law husband of 10 years, 43-year-old John Sosnovsky, in Tanya Bennett's death. Hmm. Laverne, it seemed, had lots of information about the case. Cops decided to investigate the allegations thoroughly as this was the first good-looking lead they had. Yeah, good. Laverne claimed she had the piece of missing denim from Tanya's jeans. Whoa. At first, Laverne's story sounded flimsy, but they listened anyway. The denim did not match the jeans worn by Tanya, but Laverne was insistent that John Sosnovsky committed the crime. Police interviewed John Savnovsky and found his behavior suspicious. They asked him if he would submit to a lie detector test. John Savnovsky agreed and took the test. He showed signs of deception during the polygraph, which deepened their interest in him. But there was no actual proof connecting Savnovsky to the crime, other than what Laverne had said. Mm -hmm. At her request, police interviewed Laverne again. This time, she said she wanted to come clean. Laverne claimed that she had been present at the rape and murder of Tanya Bennett. Oh, oh, wow. This changed things considerably. I'd say. Because she says she's an eyewitness. Yeah. Cops drove Laverne out to the area where Tanya's body had been found. And without prompting, Laverne was able to point to the spot directly. Okay. Although she was unable to lead police to Tanya's missing purse. Evidence was turned over to the Multnomah County Deputy District Attorney, who ordered Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnovsky arrested for first-degree murder of Tanya Bennett. Fearing the death penalty in February of 1991, Sosnovsky pled guilty and was sentenced to life behind bars. Mm. Laverne, who thought she would receive a much lighter sentence for cooperating, was also tried. She was found guilty but not before her lawyer attempted to bring a note that had been written on a truck stop's bathroom wall into evidence. Okay. It read, I killed Tanya Bennett in 1990 in Portland. I beat her to death, raped her, and I loved it. Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame, and I'm free. And it was signed with a smiley face. Wow. Okay. Wow, in a bathroom. (coughs) Yeah, Mm. truck stop. Trucks, yeah, well, of course. The judge denied the note's entry into evidence, citing it as hearsay. Yeah, I mean, I get it, yeah. Laverne was found guilty of her participation in Tanya Bennett's death, 
and was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole only after serving 10 years. This is intriguing so far. Right away, Laverne began to recant her story, claiming she made it up to get rid of her abusive common-law husband. Oh, okay. A fan of Matlock and an armchair detective, she said, <laughs> I know, uh, she said she had put everything together by way of media reports on the case. Now, I know you have a connection to Matlock, Scott, so that's why I'm kind of giggling. Well, yeah, well, well, I have older parents. Yeah, you know I mean, enough said. Have you told the Matlock story on this podcast? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, the, the time when we were out at Halloween and my parents were yes watching, uh, they were at my house to hand out candy, and and we were coming back to my house, and we were outside. Yes, outside, not inside. Outside, walking past my house, and we could hear Matlock <laughs> blaring from inside. Yes. Like, like, Dad's a bit hard of hearing his stepmom too. So, you know, we came inside and lo and behold, Matlock is like 97 volume. We're not laughing at this case. We're laughing at that situation. Yeah. And, you know, like it's good to see Matlock still out there solving crimes. Exactly. All of Laverne's claims, obviously, fell on deaf ears as that of a convicted murderer lying to get out. Although unknown to authorities, the author of the note in the bathroom was a man named Keith Hunter Jesperson. He was the real killer, and Pavlinak and Sosnovsky going down for his crime made him feel invincible. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. Um, he uh, still had to take credit for it. Well, it's interesting that the, the uh, Sosnovsky pled guilty, but it, it just goes to show that you can't... Uh, well, these two people probably didn't have the means to have a decent defense. Oh, without a doubt. And if, if it's looking like you're going to be yep. sent to the death penalty, but you, you have this out... Yep. You know, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it lends a lot of credence to the, um, you, you can't always trust confessions. Yeah. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on April 6, 1955, just down the road from the Umberyard here in Chilliwack, BC. His parents were Les and Gladys Jesperson. He was the middle child with two sisters and two brothers. Jesperson would later claim that he had an unhappy childhood and suffered violence and psychological abuse at the hands of his father and his paternal grandfather, Arthur, a burly blacksmith. Both men were alcoholics. Hmm. You hear that a lot in these uh, cases. Mm -hmm. There were signs of mental illness in the family as well. Arthur's brother, Keith's great uncle, killed himself in a mental hospital by pounding a three-inch spike into his head. Whoa! Right? Whoa! Les Jesperson, Keith's father, bounced from job to job at first, working as a blacksmith for a time, just like his dad, mm -hmm. as well as trying his hand at welding, plumbing, and in logging camps. Les later started a few construction businesses, and at 28, he was elected the youngest alderman in Chilliwack's history at the time. Oh, wow. So, they sound like a pretty well-to-do family. Sure, sure. Keith Jesperson claims there was no affection in their home, and the only love he got was from the family dog, a black lab named Duke. Which is a good dog name. <laughs> yeah. Although his closest family member was his pet, Jesperson began to torture and kill small animals in the neighborhood as early as five years old. Nope. Keith acted out his sadistic fantasies on gophers, crows, and neighborhood cats, as well as small dogs. He claims his father knew of and even encouraged his atrocious behavior, bragging to his friends about his son's proficiency at dispatching pesky animals. Wow, so much wrong. So much wrong with that. This is from Keith's point of view, though, so we don't know how much of this is true. This is just what he, he said. Keith began to set fires, too, obsessed with watching them burn to nothing. 
He loved the sounds made by bugs he'd thrown into a campfire. He and another boy even set fire to an abandoned house, which burnt to the ground before fire crews could get there. Nice kid. Yeah, a great start to this upbringing. Yeah, so already we have the two uh, of the McDonald triad again. I'm just going to constantly assume he's a bedwetter. Everybody in here is a bedwetter. <laughs> okay. So. Uh, when Les had discipline to dole out, he administered it with a thick leather belt, and Keith was the uh, recipient a lot. Keith longed for his father's attention, but his dad otherwise ignored him for the most part, giving attention to his other kids. When attention did come, it was in the form of wisecracks and derision while Les Jesperson was drinking. Mm. Les had a twisted sense of humor, too. When Keith was a boy, they had an electric fence. He wanted to know, Keith wanted to know how you would know if it was working or not. I see where this is going. Uh, his father told him to piss on the fence, and the young Jesperson got shocked through his balls. Kind of laughing a bit here. Yeah, that had to hurt, though. Eh. According to Keith, Les roared with laughter, telling Keith it was a learning experience. Yeah, well, what did he learn? Not to pee on the electric fence. Just fences in general. Don't pee on fences. Fair enough. Keith's mother, Gladys, an extremely modest and large woman, nearly six feet tall, didn't fare too well either, and was constantly ordered around by Les. Keith stood out right away, too. He was much larger than the other kids and really uncoordinated. They teased him for it and he resented them. He hung out mostly by himself and sometimes with his maternal grandfather. Keith Jesperson had his first interactions with a girl when he was five. They kissed each other and played doctor. That sounds normal enough. Later on, when playing at a local farm, one of the workers told the children he would, quote, teach them about sex. Oh, he convinced them all to take off their clothes but Jesperson became afraid and ran off when the man suggested they touch pee-pees. Oh, no, good call. Good call, Jesperson. Uh, he later uh, asked his friend who stayed behind what had happened, and his friend admitted that he'd been sodomized by the man and it had hurt. Oh, poor kid. He was also confused about his parents' sexual relationship. He had heard sounds coming from the bedroom that sounded like someone was in pain, he knew you always got the belt in your bedroom, and in his already warped, developing mind, sex and violence somehow melded together. Hmm, yeah, not a good uh, combo at an early age. When Keith was nine, he got into a fight with another nine-year-old on the boy's front lawn. The boy's mother came out screaming at Keith to get off the property. Keith called her a bitch and rode off on his bike. As he rode, a car pulled up. The 16-year-old brother of the 9-year-old that Keith had been fighting with leapt out. He knocked Keith off his bike and began kicking him with his pointy-toed cowboy boots. Yikes. Yeah, yikes. As the older boy left, he drove over Keith's bike with his car, destroying it. That's a dick move. In the meantime, the mother had called the RCMP and wanted to press charges against 9-year-old Keith. Les Jesperson was livid and embarrassed. Drunk, Les beat Keith senseless until his mother had to pull him off. Even when it came out that the woman had been cursing worse than Keith was, and had sent her other son after him, Les was still disappointed in Keith. Keith could never please his dad and was hurt that he was such a disappointment to him. Yeah, I get that. But, I don't know, it always sounds like when we're going through this kind of stuff, this person who ends up being a murderer is trying to blame his behavior on somebody else's behavior. Serial killers are psychopaths, and they're not going to want to uh, accept blame. But, I mean, a lot of it is probably accurate as well. I mean, it, I don't, not to say that uh, this kind of abuse creates 
monsters, but um, uh, it's a part of what creates them. But it doesn't it doesn't absolve any one of them uh, of the responsibility of what they've done. One of the only kids who'd regularly play with Keith was a mischievous boy named Martin. Martin would regularly blame Keith for instigating any trouble the pair got in. Mm. Les Jesperson, believing Martin, would beat Keith with a belt in front of everyone to punish him. Mm. Keith, having had enough of Martin's lies about him, pounced on the boy and began beating him in a blind rage. He claims he would have killed Martin had his father not pulled him off the boy. Mm. Yeah. Early on, he's showing those flashes of rage where he can't control. For sure. That ended that friendship. Any relationships that Keith had with other kids were full of conflict. In another incident, Keith almost drowned one boy who had been bullying him for some time in Cultus Lake. The only thing that saved the boy from the enraged Jesperson was a lifeguard who intervened, seeing Keith holding the other boy underwater. Shit. Yep. Cultus Lake is beautiful, though. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's weird that we know these places. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when he was 12 years old, Keith Jesperson's family moved across the board to Selah, Washington. They moved into a large home in a middle-class neighborhood. Les Jesperson was opening an engineering office in nearby Moxie. Hmm. Keith didn't want to move, but he had no say in it. He was painfully shy, and he didn't want to have to start over somewhere else. Hmm. The kids in Washington didn't like Keith either, making nicknames up for him based on his size, also reminding him he was, quote, an immigrant. <laughs> He came from so far away. Yeah. They picked on him for his thick Canadian accent. I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> it was at this point Keith started getting into trouble. He and another boy were caught shoplifting at a local store and the police became involved. He began to use his size to his advantage as well and took to fighting with other boys, even knocking out the front tooth of one opponent. Dang. Well, he was a big guy. That's true. He was constantly in trouble now. This was not good for Keith's reputation in the small town. He even shot an arrow with an improvised exploding tip into the front door of a teacher he loathed. Dear God, the guy's a loose cannon. It sounds, he sounds pretty angry. Wow. He began turning further inward, daydreaming and fantasizing. He even saw himself as the creature from the Black Lagoon at one point, hid in the bushes waiting to pounce and rape the best-looking victim. No one came by at that time. Um, sure, sure. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, like, I'm just like, I've seen the movie. I don't think that's what he does. Stand in the bushes, wait for someone to come by and pounce. One of his dreams was of returning to Canada and becoming a Mountie. Oh. He certainly had the size for it, but he was goofy and gangly, and he was growing really tall, but he was not fit. And, yeah. And that's what would later, he would apply, but was rejected. And he's also a terrible human being. Sure. So there's that. There is that. There weren't as many animals to torture as there had been in Chilliwack, but Keith managed to find some. He would repeatedly shoot at neighborhood pets with his BB gun Jeez. and killed many that way. You, know, yeah. you can imagine how long that would take. He later admitted that the more an animal suffered, the more sexually gratified Keith felt. Oh, no. The escalation toward his later crimes had begun, and he was only 14. Yeah, yeah. At this time, Jesperson claims he lost his virginity in an act of rape. This is what he claims. Interestingly, he says a female classmate raped him repeatedly, not the other way around, and he became obsessed with violent sex from that point on. Um, yeah, I don't... This is a weird one. This is a very weird one. Mm -hmm. 
He didn't drink much with the other kids because he was afraid he'd lose control and the real Keith would rear his head. Mm. He got into wrestling. The other kids teased him about not being able to reach the top of the rope that they had to climb and practice. Determined to make it, during one practice, Keith made it all the way to the top. The rope came out of the metal bracket in the ceiling and Keith fell 25 feet to the hard gym floor. He cracked his head hard when he fell, but he had made it. It's not good for you. No, and yeah. head injuries at a young age are also another one of those indicators. Yeah, but he seemed to have gone off quite early. Well, this may have helped. <laughs> it was, exactly, sure. It didn't knock anything back together. No. Keith got his first car and found some freedom and a love of speed and reckless driving. He also started heading off into the woods to kill animals with his twenty-two rifle to take the edge off. Oh my god. Duke, Keith's dog, was starting to slow down. Les made comment after comment about the dog getting old. Oh, I see where this is going. Les took Duke hunting with him and came back alone. He stated, He must have got into some coyote poison, Keith. He was dragging ass. Didn't look good. I had to shoot him. Mm -hmm. Keith was devastated. The only living thing in the world that he believed that loved him unconditionally was gone. It's very strange that this guy loved an animal that much. But yet, by this point, had already killed many an animal. Many, many, many. Very... Yeah, like I say, I left so many details out. If, if you want to read the details, I'll give you a book to read later on. But I'm not saying them. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Good. Keith graduated high school and began driving trucks for a living. His dad refused to pay for him to go to college as he said he didn't have what it took. <laughs> Jeez. Women still confused Keith, but he did get attention from them. He was now six feet six inches tall and weighed about 240 pounds. That's a big fella. He was a big dude. In 1974, he met Rose. The two hit it off and they were quickly engaged, but Jesperson had cold feet. He told his father he didn't want to marry Rose, after all, and Les told him that it was going to happen whether he wanted it to or not. Mm. All the relatives had been invited and he didn't want to be embarrassed. Well, sure. The wedding happened on August 2nd of 1975. I also read, I didn't write it down here, that he had been kissing one of the bridesmaids in the back right before getting married. Oh. Yeah. Well. Nice guy. Teacher. He was still fantasizing about other women even while with Rose. Keith ran heavy machinery for Les's construction firm, helping him to build a trailer park, but the two clashed often. He took his frustrations out killing cats with a pellet gun. God, this guy. He began to realize that he actually cared for Rose. They started trying to get pregnant. Great, because so far he seems like to, he would be a great dad. They eventually had three children in quick succession, Melissa, Jason, and Carrie. Keith became a long-haul truck driver to support the family, and he doted on his children. Many of them were surprised when it came out later that he was what he was. Oh, okay. We'll talk in the next episode about what Melissa found out, though. Mm. He treated them well because he didn't want them to feel the way he had. Yeah, okay. None of his family suspected the malignant thoughts and secrets Keith was keeping. They missed him when he was away. Mm. When his eldest daughter Melissa was six, however, Keith showed her his dark side. 
she had been playing with some kittens in the yard. Keith arrived asking what she was doing, and she showed him the cats. Darkness came across Keith's face. He said he hated cats, and that he used to drown them as a boy. He took the kittens from Melissa and hung them on the clothesline. Melissa ran to get Rose, but when they came back outside, the cats were dead on the ground. Oh, my God. Melissa was afraid of her father after that. Uh, Yeah, understandably. After Rose had her children, Keith started to lose interest in her. He said she was too fat and that he liked skinny women. Oh, what a nice fella. Their marriage obviously started to crumble. Hmm. On his long drives all over the U.S. and Canada, Keith started keeping company with what he called lot lizards typically drug-addicted, down-on-their-luck truck-stop sex workers. Mm. Not a nice name for a person. No, no. Some of these women would even call the Jesperson home when Keith was away, asking for him, claiming to be his girlfriends. Oh, that must have sat great with his wife. Well, not really, because she had enough and wanted Keith out of the house in 1988. Good, good. Keith agreed and moved to Portland with a waitress named Peggy Jones that he'd met. Separating from Rose and the kids who went to Spokane, Hmm. he filed for divorce from Rose in 1989, but he and Peggy were already in the process of breaking up after he'd found she'd been unfaithful in early 1990. She was on the road with another long-haul trucker. Keith was now alone in their house, 35 years old, lonely, frustrated, and angry. Yeah, and a piece of shit. Keith decided to go shoot pool and blow off some steam at the B&I Tavern on January 21st, 1990. This is where Keith Hunter Jesperson met Tanya Bennett and bought her a drink. Mm. The waitress told Jesperson that Tanya was mildly intellectually challenged. She used the R word. I'm not going to. Yeah, don't, don't. Keith didn't care. He liked the attention from the pretty young woman. They talked for a while, but he realized Tanya was chatting him up to buy her and her pals more booze. Mm. So frustrated, he left the bar and went home for an hour, thinking. He couldn't get this girl out of his head. But he was angry, too. Yeah. Keith got back into his car and drove back to the B&I Tavern. As he pulled in, he saw Tanya coming out into the parking lot. Hmm. He got out of his car, reintroduced himself, offering to take her for dinner as it was around that time of day. Keith had been up for abducting the girl, but was surprised when she simply agreed to come along. Once they were in Keith's car, he showed her that his wallet was empty, telling her he had to drive back to his place to pick up some cash. Hmm. He'd killed his cat earlier in a fit of rage, and thoughts of that were mashed together with fantasies of sex with Tanya. What a depraved head. Jesperson claimed he needed a few minutes to clean up before dinner and invited Tanya into his house. She agreed, leaving her purse and Walkman in the car. They entered the house, and Jesperson went into the bedroom to plot his next steps. From Jack Olson's book, I, The Creation of a Serial Killer, Jesperson said, My mind was spinning. I thought about keeping her as my sex slave. I wanted total possession. No bullshit, no talk back. I would keep her for a couple of weeks and then kick her out. I'd read about Ted Bundy keeping his women for a long time before he killed them. Some women had it coming. Oh my God. You like this guy? No, no, not particularly. Yeah. Jesperson came out of the bedroom and advanced aggressively. He grabbed Tanya who struggled and tried to get away. He claims that once she realized this was hopeless, she gave in and they had consensual sex. Well, that's not actually consensual, but sure. In his mind, it was. Well, yeah, I know, but yeah. Jesperson says that Tanya was unhappy with his performance and said she was done and now wanted him to take her for dinner. He saw Red and raped Tanya again. Upon finishing, 
He wanted to knock her out so he could hogtie her and save her for later. He punched her as hard as he could in the temple, but she stayed conscious. He hit her again. Same result. Jesperson flew into a rage and rained down blows into the small woman's face until she was barely recognizable. She was crying for her mother. He realized now he had to keep her from talking. Keith wrapped his massive hands around Tanya's throat and squeezed as hard as he could for almost five minutes. She wouldn't die. Jesperson thought that throttling a human being to death was not as easy as they made it look in the movies. Mm-hmm. He knew the job was done when Tanya stopped moving and urinated on the floor where she lay. Oh. Jesperson got up and made himself a cup of coffee. Now what? Keith redressed Tanya after finishing his coffee. He washed and dried his own clothes and put them back on. There was blood spattered all over the place. He cut the fly off her jeans as he was afraid the metal buttons would show his fingerprints. Oh, that was what? This was the missing piece from her jeans. Yeah. He threw the zipper and denim into the fireplace for disposal. Fearing Tanya would come back to life, Jesperson ran into the garage and got some yellow nylon rope, which he cinched tightly as he could around Tanya's neck. He needed an alibi. What better place than the B&I? He went right back, leaving Tanya laying dead on the floor. He said goodbye to her as he walked out the door. Oh, dick. He went back to the bar, ordered a beer, and chatted up the barmaid and some other folks until about 9.30 that night. After he left the bar, Keith drove out to the Columbia River Gorge to scout out dump sites about 10 miles away. After finding a good spot, he drove back home, making sure to fill his gas tank on the way. Ugh. I hate this man. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want to run out of gas with a dead body in the car. Well, I don't want to run out of gas without one in there. Keith went home and waited until midnight with Tanya's corpse still on the floor before making his move. He used the rope around Tanya's neck to drag her to the car. He bent her knees and stuffed her into the passenger seat of his Nova. Her head lolled against the window as he quietly but quickly shut the door. Hmm. He drove carefully out to the area he'd scouted. He didn't want to get pulled over. But there were cars in the parking lot when he pulled in. This wouldn't do. He was talking to Tanya's corpse as he went, saying, where do you want to live? And those kind of things. Oh, God. He drove about a mile further down the road until he saw a bit of a ravine. Jesperson dragged Tanya from his car and flung her over the embankment about 60 feet away. He yelled after her, this is it, you're home. Again, that's from Jack Olson's book. Jesperson sped away from the dump site, tossing the shoes he'd been wearing, he had a spare pair, and Tanya's Walkman as he went. He drove to a truck stop and drank coffee until 8 a.m., making sure people saw him there. Yeah. Afterward, he drove out to Sandy River Road, took Tanya's last $2 from her purse, and flung the purse into a blackberry bush. Hmm. And that's where it would sit. Keith considered suicide, but he didn't want to tarnish the family name. Nah, you should do it. You know, Jesperson drove home and painted over the walls and ceiling that Tanya's blood had splashed onto. Peggy was on her way home, and he didn't want her seeing the mess he'd made, even if they were on the outs. Later on that year, when visiting Keith's daughter Melissa was laying on the living room couch, looking at the ceiling, she saw brown stains on the ceiling under the paint. Melissa didn't think to mention what she saw and didn't put two and two together until years later when she heard about these crimes. Well, yeah, why would she think otherwise at that point in time? But the memory of it comes rushing back. I can imagine, yeah. Afterward. Yeah, but again, previous to knowing all that, you're not going to see stains on a roof and instantly think, oh, murder. As soon as Peggy arrived home, the fights were on again. 
Jesperson decided to go to Sacramento to get some work and some time away. He had to get away from the situation. Peggy was driving him nuts. He'd begun to have nightmares and would wake up screaming over what he had done to Tanya. Yeah. Good. It was just around this time Jesperson heard that two other people had been arrested for his crime. He thought the heat was off, at least for a little while, but where do these two morons get off taking credit for his work? He thought, never mind, he'd let them take the fall for now, but this nagged at him. He was compelled to do something, so he wrote on a wall of a truck stop, and he wrote the I Killed Tanya Bennett and with the happy, happy face yeah. that I mentioned above. Yeah. As he drove to Sacramento, Jesperson was thinking about kidnapping a sex slave or even killing again. He'd gotten away with it once, and the next time would be even easier. Keith was at the Shazda shopping center for a bite to eat. He was getting himself worked up thinking about Tanya Bennett. He was thinking he needed some time alone to mm. really think about it. Yeah. He noticed a woman breastfeeding, and he stared at her. She saw him and asked him what he was looking at. Keith approached the woman and noticed she was drunk. They chatted for a while, and he told her his real name and where he was actually headed. Mm. Not sure what his motivation for doing that was. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he thought he'd be able to control himself if he knew she knew. Oh, that's a possibility. She'd been fighting with her husband and was drinking to drown her sorrows. Keith offered to buy her beer, and the trio left the mall to go to a more secluded spot to drink and talk. Everything about that uh, little scenario doesn't make me comfortable. As their chat turned towards sex with the baby in the back seat, Keith began playing with himself, ultimately forcing the woman into performing oral sex. Jesus. The woman began to scream and struggle. Keith grabbed her in a headlock and tried mightily to snap her neck. He failed three times, unable to gain leverage in the cramped confines of the car. Mm. When the woman screamed for Keith not to hurt the baby, he came back to his senses. He'd never killed a child. <sighs> he let go of the woman and got out of the car to clear his head. The woman got out of the car too, and she was about to run away, but Keith, now calm, apologized and convinced the woman to get back into the car. It was far too far to walk back to civilization. What an uh, odd situation to be in in her shoes. And she's drunk. Yeah. So she's probably not thinking very clearly. Drunk with a baby. Yeah. Uh, far from civilization, but yet had just been pretty much raped and brutalized. Yeah. The woman got into the car and Keith drove them back to the Shasta shopping center and dropped her and her baby off. As he drove away, he knew he'd made a huge mistake. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> Keith knew he was in trouble when he pulled into the truck stop in Corning. Cops were there waiting for him. He was arrested as he was wanted for assault on the woman from Shasta. Yeah, well, you don't say. Yeah, because she'd gone and called the cops. Good. Immediately, Keith played Mr. Nice Guy, cooperating with the police as best he could without giving himself away. Keith said that the drunken woman had offered to perform oral sex on him for the beer. He said it was cramped in the car and he had never intended to hurt her. He claimed she was angry when he orgasmed too quickly. When asked why he thought the woman would have claimed Keith assaulted her, he said she probably needed some explanation for her husband, who was probably pissed off with her that she was so late. Oh, boy. Again, from Jack Olson's book, I, the Creation of a Serial Killer. Our two versions were close and only took off in opposite directions at the crucial spot where I tried to break her neck. But my story made more sense than hers. I said, if I was going to assault this woman, why would I tell her my name and who I work for and where I was headed? All I wanted to do was grab some sleep and keep on driving. She was the one that wanted to make out. 
how would I find that lover's lane by myself? They took off the handcuffs, and I began to get the feeling that they were leaning my way. Hey, I said, if you had an easy chance to get lucky, wouldn't you? So guess what? Yeah, they let him go. The they? cops bought his story. Yeah. However, the Corning cops said he had to go back to Shasta to talk to the detectives there. So Jesperson drove right back to Shasta and directly to the sheriff's department. Keith went over the same story with the Shasta sheriffs and went through the motions of showing them where everything had happened. They believed him too. Of course. Jesperson was released and told to watch out who he partied with. Wow. Wow. He went on his merry way to Sacramento. He'd gotten away with another crime. The real killer of Tanya Bennett slipped through law enforcement's fingers again. With two barflies in the slammer for his murder, Keith Hunter Jesperson was starting to feel like he could get away with doing whatever he liked. Yeah. This was just the beginning of what would lead to the deaths of at least seven more women at the hands of this Canadian-born maniac. Yeah, I would imagine that, um, I, I think he learned from that last one, uh, don't let them live. Pretty much. Yeah. Next week in part two, we'll hear more about Keith Hunter Jesperson. Yeah. The happy face killer. Yeah. Wow. It, yeah, because it gets worse. And it's pretty bad. It is pretty bad. It's pretty bad. I changed up the intro slightly. I'll be introducing things before we get to the intro music. I just feel like it flows better. Sure, let's do it. All right. We have some new patrons, as I mentioned. Uh, Christy Lee from Canadian True Crime. Thank you very much uh, for supporting us. Much appreciated. I love your podcast. Yeah, I've been binging through it lately. There you go. Courtney, Courtney Zuck, thank you for your patronage as well. We follow each other on the Twitter. Oh. Cody Dragies. Interesting. And he's from Yellowknife. Oh, okay. Yellowknife. Yeah. And Elizabeth Chuchnicki from Hamilton, Ontario. Elizabeth Chuchnicki. Did oh. I say that right? You're asking the wrong guy. I, I guess know. so. I'm sorry, Elizabeth, if I mispronounce your name. Thank you for your patronage. <laughs> I'm just going to go with Elizabeth. There you go. Yeah. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you. If you want to donate to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or send us some donut money via PayPal. Oh, my favorite. I love the PayPal's. <laughs> it's PayPal, actually. I've got a few PayPal's. And our email address is darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and just search Dark Poutine. Tell your friends about us. We've uh, actually doubled our downloads since our daily downloads since last week. So I want to thank the Minds of Madness listeners and the uh, Trail Went Cold listeners who've, who've popped in. Many thanks. Many thank you. Don't forget, we have our very cool closed facebook group the yumber yard uh we're there and active and you can meet some other cool listeners too from all over the planet yeah you can subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast directory like itunes podcast google play stitcher tune in spotify and our host podbean we have one podcast promo this week and it's from jessica from the asian madness podcast jessica there's a good chance that you yeah you are interested in true crime and all things creepy and weird. If I'm right, then there's also a good chance you might find my podcast, The Asian Madness Podcast, interesting. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much everywhere else. 
It's true crime. It's dark. It's morbid. And it's weird. Come explore the dark side of Asia with me. Because let's face it, Asia is just as crazy as the rest of the world. Yeah, I met Jessica at CrimeCon, mm-hmm. and she's a pretty, pretty cool person. Yeah, I get this feeling. She's really, really... Uh... She started her podcast right around the same time we did. Oh, did she? Yeah. No, oh, we're like, so, really podcast born. Yeah, that's what I, I called her, my pod sister. Pod sister. Oh. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. She lives in the Philippines right now. Mm. Interesting individual. Yeah. So if you want... Make sure that you check out her podcast. It is well worth a listen. Do it. Uh, we'll be going on to the after show. We have an interesting case from Langley to talk about today. <laughs> it involves poop. Yeah. As it should. <laughs> As it should. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.